Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So um, today's topic is one I've been looking forward to ever since the opportunity came up on the radar screen um, relatively recently. This came together very quickly, which... Uh, which is great. Um, sort of behind the scenes, if you see the sausage being made, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that our extraction from the Vietnam War took as much negotiating as, as getting some of our guests on. But this was, uh, this was, was pretty user-friendly, and I'm, I'm very glad about that because it has to do with um, something that I like to think anyways in my wheelhouse, which is startups and funding startups. And you know, if you happen to be in Atlanta or if you're in, you like Atlanta, um, you know, funding a, a high growth startup is, uh, is hard. I mean, it's hard everywhere, but it's, it's really hard if you aren't in kind of one of the hot spots where, where venture capital is, uh, is an innate part of the culture. And uh, particularly, well, actually, no, I'm going to take that back because I did background research for this, this interview I actually learned some things that that changed some things that I thought that I knew, corrected some things that I thought that I knew. Um, it is it is tempting to think that because we are in a a second tier capital market here in Atlanta, that that pay to pitch, which is our topic today, would uh, would thrive because you know our our ecosystem, although it has improved immensely in the last fifteen years. Um, is still kind of hit or miss. There's still kind of pockets in Atlanta. There are certain kinds of deals that are very, I think, easy to get funded if you have a good company. There are certain kinds of companies, on the other hand, at least in terms of the industry and the maturity that are, are very difficult to get funded. And so when I've held my office hours, when I've uh, given talks, even when I, when I teach at Georgia Tech, I'm asked a lot this question of, you know, there's this organization in town, organization X, um, that says they can put me in front of a room full of investors, but they want $20, a $100, $1,000, $10,000 to do it. You know, should I do it? And, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a tough topic, particularly if you're a, if you're a startup company, if you're getting in front of a room of real people, chances are that's 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 not going to be that's not going to be cheap. I mean, that, that's a precious opportunity and a precious asset. But at the same time, you know, for startups, by definition, um, uh, capital is tight. So, you know, you you don't have the you don't have the luxury, frankly, of out of outspending your mistakes. And so, this discussion 
pay to pitch will, will sometimes frankly get very animated. And, um, uh, I, I'm really glad that we have the chance to address this head on in this, in this particular program. Now, my, my view is, should I pay to pitch? I think it, it depends. Um, but we're going to have, uh, we're going to start a conversation in a minute with um, the individual who runs one of the, maybe the preeminent um, investor gathering facilitation groups uh, around the country called Karetsu Forum. And we do have a, at least one chapter in Atlanta, I believe. They meet up in Alpharetta, if I'm not mistaken. Um, a guy who's a friend of mine by the name of Barry Etcher, I think is their current local uh, executive uh, executive chairman, and I think they've they've managed to gain some traction here. Um, so let me get let me get to it with that preamble because I don't want to waste time with with me talking. We need our guests to talk because that's how we learn. And joining us today is Nathan McDonald, who is the CEO of Karetsu Capital and chairman of Karetsu Forum Northwest, and he is joining us today from the uh, the beautiful city of uh, Seattle, or at least uh, at least thereabouts. Uh, Karetsu Forum is a worldwide investment community of capital resources and deal flow with over 50 chapters on three continents comprised of accredited private equity angel investors, venture capitalists, and corporate institutional investors. Karetsu Forum has invested $750 million into over 1,000 companies. Karetsu Forum and Karetsu Capital are ranked as the most active venture investors in the United States, according to PitchBook. I did not know that. Nathan McDonald is CEO of Karetsu Capital and has been since 2014 fostering closer ties between Karetsu Forum Angels, the institutional investor community, and Karetsu Forum portfolio companies. Karetsu Capital provides access to proprietary deal flow by investing alongside the Angels, providing additional capital to complete rounds and acting to source follow-on capital where appropriate. Under Nathan's leadership, Karetsu Capital has launched four co-investment funds and now manages over $30 million from over 180 Karetsu investors and over 160 portfolio company investments. Nathan has also co-founded and currently serves as chairman of the Northwest region of the Karetsu Forum Global Angel Investment Group, the largest chapter in the group. Nathan earned his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Washington, Foster Business School in Administration and Finance, with an emphasis in entrepreneurial leadership and venture finance. He serves as president of the Burek Center Entrepreneur Alumni Committee. I hope I pronounced that right. Nathan McDonald, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mike. Really great to be here. Uh, great topic. Uh, decision points, very important for entrepreneurs, and uh, uh, there's a lot of them along the way. So excited to talk about fundraising and uh all the different ins and outs of how that works here for you guys today. So, you know, let, let's, let's get into it. And, and some of our listeners are, are familiar with the startup community. Some are, are, are frankly not. So I want to, I want to start with a very basic question, which is, you know, why do organizations like Karetsu Forum exist? And I, it, it, you know, I think you're, if not the preeminent, one of the preeminent organizations, but there are lots of others that are localized. Um, what what's the market need or what's the pain point that Karetsu Forum and, and organizations like you are addressing? Yeah, Mike, great to give a little background. And I've spent uh, the last 20 years uh, researching uh, angel groups and uh, building angel groups, supporting the ecosystems. And it all started at the University of Washington when I was getting my bachelor's degree there and studying entrepreneurship during the, during the dot-com craze when things uh, were evolving rapidly. I uh, did a research project on the formation of formal, informal angel groups here in the Seattle area. 
got a chance to learn the history of angel investing here in the Northwest, as well as across the country and how angel groups came to be. Um, really started in the late 90s based on the Texas Capital Network in Austin. Uh, that was a model that the SBA put out and they created a, a government-backed uh, ACENET. They created an angel group in every state, uh, tried to streamline and organize capital formation. This is obviously pre-internet, you know, back when people actually physically got together and and mailed letters to each other to raise capital was even more challenging than it is today in terms of finding and discovering folks who may be interested in investing in companies. Uh, most of those groups failed, but uh, a few uh, went on and did well. The Band of Angels got started in the in the in the, and then the Puget Sound Venture Club and other kind of early angel groups uh, got going in the in the 90s. And since then, it's been a phenomenon that's expanded, and there's about 250 active angel groups in the United States today. Uh, and then there became the formation of angel groups and angel networks where you have the different organizations working together. And the challenge that they address is really, you know, early stage capital formation. And while we're a country that has tremendous wealth, uh, the allocation of that wealth towards early stage startups is very slim. Uh, it's less than 3% that make any kind of angel investment of all the accredited investors in the United States and it's really one half of, of 1% that are ones that actually write checks that are 25, 50K that you normally associate with kind of active, sophisticated angel investors. So it's a very, while there's lots of wealthy folks in every community, there's lots of wealth. The allocation of that wealth to entrepreneurial ventures is very small because it's, it's fraught with challenges. And unfortunately, the most likely result of folks doing angel investing is they lose all their money. And, uh, you know, as those of us who've lost money know, it's not a fun experience. And uh, there's a lot of other things we'd rather be doing with our time than than losing our capital and our time and our efforts. So, you know, coming together in a group allows all of us to be better investors. That's why Randy Williams, our founder of Kretz, who started the organization 20 years ago, he was tired of losing money on his angel investments. He said there's got to be a better way. And really leveraging the idea of mindshare, of swarm intelligence, of bringing smarter people together around him so that he could evaluate the opportunities. And what turned out is that everybody benefited from that philosophy of sharing experiences and being able to look at these opportunities, help the entrepreneurs, you know, help improve the quality of the deal flow, you know, get the due diligence done and help create a much more sustainable uh, process for investing. So, you know, different groups have different focuses, different size. It's it's kind of all over the board. Um, but, you know, in general, they're all geared towards trying to help support entrepreneurs and help support investors come together uh, in a somewhat of an organized way that provides, uh, you know, hopefully a great experience and hopefully ultimately great returns on that collective time and effort. So you bring up an interesting point that I want to, I'd like to kind of underscore here. And this may be a record that I go off script. I, I normally at least get two or three questions in. But um, uh, that that notion that that you know a lot of investors do lose money by you know these are high risk investments. That's why the high return is there, and and the the challenge or the the unfortunate side effect of that is that you know if you're dipping your toe into your first investment and then it doesn't go well, the likelihood you're going to try again is is very small. Right. And so there's a there's a vested interest in building an ecosystem, I think, where you're 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 offering even you know increasingly better opportunities, you're sharing resources and making sure that those first couple of uh of investments, if not home run successes, that's not realistic, but at least make sure they're not 
give you the best chance to not have them be disasters so that if, if at least the original investment is more or less returned, that the investors will then try again. Um, because that, that's what you need, I think, to, to, to really gain uh, traction and momentum in the angel investing space. And, you know, as you said, ensure that that, that foundation capital remains available and we hope expands. What, what do you think about that? That's exactly right, uh, Mike, and that's been the arc of my career the last 20 years to try and build that and create that and institute those best practices because what we've learned is that the key drivers of superior return are, you know, number one, proprietary access to deal flow, where the deal flow comes from. Uh, Number two, due diligence, you know, 80 to 100 hours of due diligence per company, Uh, and then having angels that have expertise in those markets involved with those companies, having great communication, great support, and then having access to follow-on funding. Um, but from an investor point of view, you've got to be diversified. So if you make five investments, the highest likelihood is you're going to lose all your money. But if you make 10 investments, you double your chances of having a successful exit. And if you get up to 20 to 30 investments, then you start to be diversified to where you're going to get the market return of the 27% IRR that they talk about. And that's why it's so important that people have access to a lot of good deals uh, so that they don't put all their egg in one or two baskets. And again, folks get lucky, right? I mean, you hit one deal and just, yep. you know, that does happen. But by and large, if you look at, you know, hundreds and hundreds of angel investors and their experiences, you know, obviously folks always love to talk about the winners. Uh, and you hear about those folks in the media and this and that. But what you don't hear about is the other 90% of the folks who just lost all their money and uh, decided maybe they'd rather play golf or travel than, you know, try and help mentor startups and those types of things. So it really takes an entrepreneurial want to on behalf of the investors. They don't do this to make money. They're doing it because they want to get back. They're entrepreneurs themselves. They built and sold companies. They appreciate how hard the journey is, the grit it takes to be successful. And they want to come alongside those entrepreneurs and help them. And with angels, it's a lot more than money. It's a relationship. It's expertise. It's all the things that they do to help these companies grow and it really is that whole combination of the entrepreneur DNA, the angel DNA that allows that solid foundation to be set, which, like you said, dramatically enhances the chances for success and avoiding those early failures that, you know, nobody likes to write a 50K check and lose their money three months later. You know, talk about yep. a slap in the face. I mean, yeah, thanks. That's an expensive education, right? Yeah, it is. You mm-hmm. know, you, you avoid one bad investment and, uh, you know, you paid for 10 years of being a part of a an organized group. So it's definitely worth participating with a group, working together. Uh, the dues for doing so are, are vastly uh, outweighed by the benefit of uh, all the things that come with it. If you're going to engage in this kind of investing and invest two or 300 K a year in angel deals, um, it's great to be part of a group, be part of multiple groups. So can you take us through, please, what, what an invest, what a pitch looks like? And I, I understand that there are there, there's a vetting process and, and you can um, certainly explain exactly how that works. But at, at some point along the line, there is a, there's a, a moment at which a capital seeking company is going to have an opportunity to make a presentation in front of folks that have the capacity and at least theoretical uh, desire to write checks into those kinds of, of investments can you paint a picture of kind of what that what that looks like? Yeah, sure thing, Mike. It's uh, you know you're always pitching your company as an entrepreneur. You're working on your pitch to your customers, to your to your advisors, to your seed investors, your friends and family. So you know that's definitely the entrepreneurial art. You know how do you present your story? How is it compelling? Um, 
we've got a lot of information and content around how to do that well. And there's a lot of that available on the internet. Actually, my wife is uh, putting on our presentation training uh, as we speak here. Um, again, in the time of COVID, uh, how do you uh, raise capital now that it's virtual? It used to be one thing where you go in a room and present, and a lot of the communication was body language. Now you present, and it's literally through Zoom. It's a whole new world. So we kind of have the, you know, what I've done for 20 years and then what we've done the last three or four months. But, you know, basically the idea of the pitch is to generate interest. Um, and that's kind of a misnomer. You don't just pitch and get get checks sent in. You know, the, the goal is to engage people's interest, engage their passions, uh, clearly articulate um, what you're doing, why you're doing it you know, why there'd be benefit for people to be involved with it. And people are really evaluating you. Who are you? And why would I want to, you know, be involved and work with you and uh, build relationships and be able to help? You know, do I support the journey? Do I support the mission? Do I support the impact? Is the technology compelling? Is there a big market? You know, all those questions that have to be answered during the pitch presentation. But Ultimately, it's really an impression. It's a gut reaction. You know, there is some pattern matching that happens with it. Obviously, folks who've been successful before, um, that resonates more. Um, But we're always looking for the underdog, too. We're looking for that uh, brand new, innovative, breakthrough idea that, you know, what is the core business? You know, is this compelling? Is there an opportunity? And is it something I want to learn more about? And so the pitch is all about generating that interest. Um, usually presenting in front of a group of, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 folks, depending on the event. Um, And there's initially usually a deal screening where you're pitching to a screening committee or some kind of a group that's going to evaluate whether to get through to the full membership. And then after you do the presentation to the full group, you generate interest. Of course, then there's follow on presentations and pitches that go on for for weeks and months uh, as you syndicate and present to multiple groups and get your due diligence uh, completed and and that's an ongoing process that gets refined. The pitch does get better. Um, it's not a one-time kind of make-or-break deal. You got to just you keep evolving and getting better at your public speaking skills, at your presentation skills. Um, that's one of the reasons we work with a lot of life science companies is because they're constantly raising money, and the yep. CEOs of those companies that are good, you know, learn early in their careers how to raise capital, and then they're constantly practicing because they're constantly raising capital. Whereas the tech companies, they raise money and then execute, and then they'll come back and raise money again. But it's not kind of as intensive a thing all the time as it is with a lot of the life science deals we work with. So, you know, the pitch is really important, but that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, that's what you see above the water. You know, everything below the water is the is what's real important in terms of making an investment decision. The pitch is just to kind of get that to that next step to be able to dig deeper. You know, I think that that distinction you just made between biotech and silicon tech is 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 really insightful, and I'm probably going to steal that. But I mean, you're right, uh, and I do much more work on the silicon side than I do on the carbon side. But um, you know, with 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 biotech, um, you, you kind of constantly raise money, and then as you keep raising incremental rounds you know, investors are going to ask, well, you know, how much closer are you to getting a product out? Well, we're not sure yet. I mean, that's, that's the nature of the beast. Whereas with Silicon, it's, well, since the last round, you know, we've now gone from an alpha to a public beta and we've got X number of customers and, and, you know, we've got a, a SaaS model that, that works. Um, very, very different, very different kind of ongoing fundraising con- conversation, I guess. I really never thought of it that way. 
Yeah, that's very different for consumer products companies or clean tech companies. Um, the industry you're in and kind of the fundraising norms within those industries um, really drive. Because again, you know, all these businesses are different. And then if you have a, a local business or if you're um, doing real estate, um, you know, real estate pitch, which we do real estate alongside, you know, fintech, clean tech, impact, consumer products. I mean, we're we're looking at all kinds of things all the time. So it makes it a lot of fun. And there's a lot you can gain from trying to kind of look across industries in terms of, you know, how do you pitch and how do you pitch well? Watching life science companies pitch are some of the best actual pitchers that uh, that you'll watch out there. Whereas, hmm. you know, tech companies can get by with great tech. And a lot of investors in tech are kind of wowed by the tech itself. So the business and the other components sometimes aren't as important, particularly early, early stage. They're necessarily more interested in the innovation and the compelling nature of it then. Uh, and so trying to make a more holistic look at where you are in the spectrum, where you are in your fundraising and, and business evolution and how that matches up with the typical, you know, risk reward scale. And with life science, it's much more regulated uh, and data driven, uh, as you said. So it's uh, just a kind of a whole different set of markets. But as entrepreneurs, we can always learn a lot by just you know, the best thing, if you want to go raise money, you got to watch people pitch to raise money that are raising money. And that's the best way to learn. That's why we love having, you know, entrepreneurs as guests to attend and see the presentations because they get to see what the big leagues look like. They get to see what companies that are raising four, six, eight million bucks, you know, get a chance to look at what that looks like. And, uh, you know, oftentimes that happens behind closed doors. Obviously, we don't get access to the VC boardrooms. We don't get to see the the board decks and, and those pitches. So, you know, how do you see what success looks like? And uh, we're very, you know, open about, you know, how we do what we do in that regard to give entrepreneurs the idea of what successful funding presentations look like. So um, I think the most frequent image we have, or I have anyway, of, of the entrepreneurs seeking to raise capital is, you know, the, 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 the person in Silicon Valley that goes to the right Starbucks or the right bar or whatever, and, and I'm sure you're familiar with that, with that, that vision too. And I guess I call that kind of the DIY market. And, and the question I want to, I want to ask is, is this, is that, is that, is that image kind of a romanticized version or image of, of the, the capital seeking entrepreneur or, you know, is there still a lot of DIY successful DIY fundraising out there? And, and if so, you know, how, how do groups like Karetsu then sell or, or, or convey a value proposition that, you know, hey, you shouldn't, you know, rather than DIY, you know, plug yourself into this community and, and we can help you do it better. Does that, that question make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you are your network. So you've got to be DIY from the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey. Um, you've got to be building your network. And, it, you know, obviously pre-COVID, that was pretty straightforward. Tons of meetups, events, accelerators, all kinds of programs to go to and, and get to know people and let them get to know you and and have your your pitch, your story, why what you're doing is compelling. And, and that's great for just building your base network, your friends, your family, advisors, other entrepreneurs, Um there's nothing to replace that, um, that hard work, you know, of just hardcore networking and uh, understanding how that process functions. And then when you get to the point where you're moving beyond that phase where, you know, the friends, family, kind of the initial 100,000 to 500,000, you can, you can raise the capital that way. Again, you're looking for maybe five to 10 investors. I mean, that's, 
you know, pre-COVID reasonably doable, you know, in the now the virtual world, you know, I feel for those folks. And I've heard a lot of stories, you know, kind of the raw tech startups, couple guys in a garage, you know, it, they don't really have access to those coffee shops anymore to raise that extra 50K a month to keep them going. And they're having a, a rough go of it. Because a lot of the capital today is going to portfolio companies and companies that are either a little further along, um, as we can understand. I mean, it just the factor of the market. But um, when you look to go to your local entrepreneur group, uh, investor group, uh, most every community has a little bit more of an earlier stage groups. We have, you know, eight angel groups here in Seattle, uh, most of which skew towards the earlier stage. And they have open coffee and they have uh, opportunities to do office hours and to, to get to know those folks and to raise capital. But, you know, a lot of those investors are, are putting in small amounts of money. They're putting in, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20K. And they're trying to do that across to be diversified. You know, they're trying to make, you know, 10, 5K investments a year. Um, and it's and for a company that just needs to raise, you know, 50K, 100K to get started, you can do that. When you get to the point where you're in the go-to-market phase, um, you're looking to raise a half a million to three million. Your product's done. You've got some customers. You got some traction. That's when the challenge point really kicks in because you need to access, you know, more sophisticated investors that are going to validate your business at a higher level you know, get the due diligence completed and be able to syndicate out. And, you know, at that point, getting in a room with, you know, 250 investors, you know, to do that on your own and, and match it up. I mean, pre-COVID, you know, you may be able to do that over a year and a half, but now post-COVID, there's really no way to do that. So it's, uh, it's really interesting how things have continued to evolve as everything's virtualized and much like it did during the dot-com craze, things reorganize themselves, you know, and that happens every year as we have, economic upturns and downturns and, and wealth is created and wealth is destroyed. Um, and we're seeing that uh, even today, it continues to evolve. And, and obviously entrepreneurs, they got to be able to evolve with it. So um, it's, uh, it's hard to raise money. Uh, there's nothing easy about it at all. And uh, accessing investors is just step one. And obviously that's kind of the ticket to the game, you know, generating interest, getting due diligence done, getting your deal terms, getting your structure correct. So you get capital in. Uh, there's lots of ways to uh, to strike out, and uh, and the road to success is narrow. So, and very competitive uh, with other entrepreneurs that are also seeking those same dollars. So, you know, entrepreneurs have to get out there; they have to compete like crazy, and uh, you know, give it your best shot. And that's all you can do. And and hope that what you're doing is uh, going to attract the right the right folks for bringing success to your journey. Yeah, and I think it's a good thing that capital is scarce too. Um, it, it would be it would be scary the things that would be out there if it, if it weren't. Um, so um, at, at, at some point, I'd like you to kind of talk about the timeline because I, I think that's very important in terms of the integrity of your process. Um, my understanding is, is that um, you don't charge a fee for, as soon as every entrepreneur walks to the door. If I understand correctly, your, your method really is, is you vet them first to see if you'll take their money basically and, and invite them into, into your, your process. Is that correct? Yeah, we originate the majority of our deal flow from within our group. So that's yeah. kind of a misnomer. I mean, obviously folks can apply and we get 30 to 50 applications a month, but the majority of the companies we end up work with are ones our members are already working with and that we've been tracking and working with for three to six months. So Again, a relationship with a group or a members of a group, it begins early and uh, we track companies, we help. Uh, we have 
you know, hundreds of community partners that we support, and then they refer deal flow to us when they get to the right stage. Um, and then entrepreneurs are always welcome to come and, and attend and view and, and see how things work. And then we offer a lot of education, but you're right. Um, we don't charge any application fees. A lot of groups will charge a hundred, a couple hundred bucks just for those 30 to 50 that come in over the transom. You know, yeah. we don't do that because, you know, we don't, we don't want to have an expectation and, and we're very value driven. And so if it's too early or if it's just not a fit, you know, that's great. We'll refer them off to our community partners or other groups if we can. Um, the deal screening is really important for us. We have about 50 members that evaluate the opportunities and they vote either invite, delay or deny against the deal flow. And typically of the seven or eight companies that present a month, you know, two or three will be invited through. And that's really what is the confidence builder for us and for the entrepreneur to understand, yeah, the investors are very interested. They want to engage, you know, 25, 30 active investors saying, yes, I'm interested. Yes, I think this is ready for the forum. There's always a little bit of coaching, a little bit of polishing, a little bit of deal terms work, uh, due diligence prep, process prep that needs to go into it. But that's our big validation factor that, yep, it's worth the investment of the time, the capital, the resources, you know, the 80 to 100 hours of work on due diligence and that we're likely to get a good result. And that uh, unless there's a big red flag that pops up, you know, down the road, there's an IP issue, there's a founder issue, there's a, a capital issue or something else, which, you know, fortunately only happens, you know, maybe 5% of the time. Our screening is quite good. And we love having a very high funding rate. I mean, we keep it over, you know, 75, 80%. Uh, in order to make sure we have lots of very happy customers, and then they come back and, and syndicate across our network. Because once we get due diligence done, then that's when the victory lap begins and the companies can syndicate. And we have, you know, another 35 angel groups that are part of our syndication network for those deal flow to go through. So we have a lot of downstream distribution that once they put in the front end work, get the due diligence completed, get the capital round going, then the key is how do you syndicate and finish off the round because any one angel group in any one city can do two or 300 grand in funding. But if you're trying to raise $8 million, that ain't going to get her done. You got to get it done there. Plus, you know, then syndicate to another five to 10 groups in order to be able to get that full capital raised. You know, and, and I, I want to underscore that point, make sure that I heard it correctly. So, so of the companies that, that, that make it through that due diligence, uh, you're saying 75 to 80% of them, ultimately get funded? So of the companies that participate in our forum meetings, uh, it's about a 75, 80% funding rate. Okay. Um, the vast majority, if you're going to go through our process, we're basically mutually committing to, to getting the due diligence done. Yep. Um, we have a full-time due diligence director. That's all he does. 40 hours a week is to, he's our chief cat herder, you know, basically, uh, you know, eight to 12 people on the due diligence teams, uh, organizing the reports, the formatting. And it's a you know six to eight week effort. Uh, can't take longer. Um, but we we commit to put our full effort into that. So there's the initial set of presentations. There's 50, 60, 70 folks that express interest. There's a due diligence team that then goes to work. Due diligence reports created. They come back for an update and then they syndicate from there. So it's a, definitely a long-term engagement with the uh, the entrepreneurs and uh, we're always doing what we can to try and help move things along uh, as best we can, as as best as the market will will bear. Well, you know, and I, and I think that's a very important distinguishing point because I've I've I have observed other groups that have a, a somewhat different model, where the model is, you know, pay us a couple thousand dollars. I've seen this as high as three to four thousand dollars. We're going to put you in a room full of investors. Here's your shot. Here's the microphone. Go. 
And you know, unsurprisingly, the funding rate uh, of those exercises is quite small. In fact, close to zero. I'm going to come back to one of those points in, in, in a second. But as an observer, you know, I, I can tell from the moment I get in, there's, there's not a legitimate investor in that room. Um, and, and you can tell that the companies are, are not only not worthy of funding, they're, they're probably embarrassing themselves in real time as they, as they, as they present. But it, it sounds like your model is very different where you put up, you put a lot of work in on the front end to, to make sure that by the time it, it, it gets in front of your general membership, that that company, you have a high level of confidence that company is ready for prime time and you're not, you're not asking for money until that point. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the confidence of the CEO and their fundraising, I mean, that's everything. If they're confident and they believe they're going to be successful, you know, and most entrepreneurs who've raised capital, who've built and sold multiple companies, they're just like, yeah, let me add it. The fact you guys have an organized process, even better. But uh, unfortunately, I mean, there are a lot of entrepreneurial, you know, meetup and pitch events that are out there that, you know, every entrepreneur needs to do their due diligence, whether it's your attorney or accountant. Uh, anywhere you're going to spend your precious resources, you know, even a an offshore development firm that says they can build your app for 20 bucks, you know, I mean, yep. yeah, right. You know, I mean, there's lots of, there's a sucker born every minute and there's lots of ways to lose money as we know in business. And uh, you've got to, you know, do your due diligence on all your advisors and uh, service providers. I mean, I know law firms, they'll charge you 20 K just to do your docs and, and give you a term sheet. Yep. And then they say, oh yeah, you're raise money. Yeah. Right. You know, and right. Then, lawyers screw up more deals and charge for the privilege than anybody. So, um, you know, we're, we're all about trying to support successful, realistic, you know, sustainable, um, funding ecosystems. And we're proud to partner with a lot of angel groups that, that do a great job with, with what they can and, and how they do it. And, you know, the kind of the startup pitch night type thing. I mean, we don't see that very often anymore. I mean, in order to attract real investors, you got to have great deal flow. I mean, these yep. people have real limited attention spans. And if you put, you know, stuff that's ill-prepared in front of them, you know, it's like a revulsion. I mean, there's like, I got lots of better things to do with my time and it's very precious. So for us, we're very guarded about, you know, the opportunities to get access to our group because that's our brand. That's our, that's our, you know, service to our, not only to our angels, but now we're working with, you know, hundreds of family offices. And these groups are very sophisticated and there are downstream capital. So ultimately the continuum works from the early stage to the mid stage to the series B round to the series C round. I mean, it's a big continuum of investor customers. And, you know, that's what we want to line up for our companies is that once you're, you know, in that track, you've got great access to deal flow, great access to customers, you know, great access to follow on funding. And it, it's just a testament that, you know, about half our portfolio companies are also family office back now. And that makes a huge difference for them. Once a startup gets a 50 to $500 million balance sheet behind them, uh, it makes things a lot easier. It's, uh, and, and if you don't get the due diligence done up front, you're not going to get to the point where you're going to be able to do that. I, I, I'm glad you brought up the point about family offices. That That's an area where I spend a, a fair amount of time in my practice. And one of the things I think makes family offices so important in this segment of the investment market is that they have, they have potentially an unlimited time horizon, right? I, I, th- I think, and I, uh, I, I think that one of the things that actually hurts venture capital is that because funds have a finite, uh, have a finite life, 
in some cases, it's just not a long enough time period, particularly for the later investments in the fund's life, for those investments to fully bake, basically. But because family offices don't have that constraint, I think it makes them very powerful uh, venture type investors. And we're only seeing the, the start of that. It is the most exciting thing I've come across in 20 years. You know, the last three years we spent, uh, just like I did 20 years ago, evaluating the formation of angel groups, spent the last three years uh, attending all the family office events and really trying to understand this phenomenon. But yeah, 20 trillion coming down and a lot of it wants to allocate to impact and tech. And there's such a symbiotic relationship between the angel investors that have the entrepreneurial expertise and the family offices that have the wealth. Uh, this is the future of entrepreneurial finance. Uh, it's not an ivory tower VC driven thing. That game will continue. And for folks that want to play that great, but the alignment between the angels and the family offices is so remarkable, you know, and we're already seeing it pick up here and there. And it just, uh, it's a great symbiotic relationship, but it's, it's traditionally been very siloed and, uh, and very localized. And so we're starting to see through our Kretzu family office efforts and others you know, we're bringing those family offices into the fold to invest alongside the angels at the levels they want. And they are patient capital and, and they're not looking to overly dilute the companies and they're not making a management fee and they're not trying to, you know, just shut a company down because it's not going to hit their unicorn hurdle and all the other destructive things that people don't talk about very much in the VC industry. But, you know, honestly, VC shut down more companies than they successfully grow um, by a factor of probably 10 to 1. And uh, it doesn't, we don't have it happen too much here in the Seattle market, but here in California, I hear about it all the time where you got a great opportunity. They had a brazen venture funding, they pivot the model, you know, they do this, they do that, and then they just shut it down. And all the folks who put in all their time and effort end up just losing everything because it didn't quite meet, you know, the one, you know, uh, term sheet controllers, uh, you know, best interest. And I, I think that's just so destructive to the community. And uh, I'm fortunate that with family offices coming in, you know, we're the most active venture investor in North America because we're really good at what we do in order for us to move up the charts in terms of the dollar volumes. We need the family offices to come alongside us and start writing the bigger B round and C round checks. And we're, we're starting to see that now we just had a a $16 million round completed. We just had a $13 million round completed. Um, we're, We're starting to see them take some nice bites of the apple, which is, you know, for me, having done this 20 years, you know, it's really exciting to see that full kind of capital spectrum come to bear and uh, really have a lot of co-investment partnership potential to it. So uh, years ago, I ran a nonprofit here in Atlanta called Startup Lounge. And it, it was and it was a nonprofit. We actually called ourselves Venture Communists. But what we were trying to do was put, not not in a presentation scenario, but put people that we thought were high potential entrepreneurs with true capital providers that we would vet and we you know do our best to screen people that got into our rooms basically a, a big cocktail party to to just initiate those one on one on one conversations and I, I'm not saying one model is better or worse than the other but but it's a preamble to saying that the, the biggest challenge we had at startup lounge was vetting investors to make sure that they legitimately you know a had the capital to invest and B, we're, we're there to invest, right? And, 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 and the reason that was a challenge for us is because, as you can imagine, being in that room, if you're a, a CPA, you're a wealth manager, you're an attorney, you know, talk about business development heaven, right? Um, and and you, you want to be in that room. And then, 
but uh, you know that can that can frustrate both the legitimate investors and the fundraisers alike. I got to imagine that's also something of which you're very aware, and you must have a process to vet new entrants into your investor pools to make sure that they're, you know, frankly on the level. Is that true? Yeah, the non-solicitation policy is the most important thing, and I you know, I kind of take it for granted, you know, but just relative to groups, if you have sponsor-driven groups that are there to serve the sponsors and the solicitation needs, then your group's going to fail. Yeah. Uh, and if you have investors there and they're getting solicited by wealth managers or, you know, by gosh, someone selling them an insurance policy or something, I mean, you know, they're out the door. Same with the entrepreneurs. They don't want to get solicited. And again, we're all looking for business. We're all trying to build relationships and we all want to be involved and help companies. So there's nothing wrong with folks, you know, uh, being involved, but it's very precious when companies are in the fundraising mode. Look, we're, you know, the imposter syndrome of folks. Yeah, I write a 5K investment and I'm an angel investor, but, you know, I'm mostly here just to, you know, sign a contract to pay me 20 grand and I'll invest 10 grand back. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff happens here and there. Obviously, we we kick anybody out who we get wind of anything like that happening. But, yeah. you know, we do reference checks. We do background checks. Um, you know, the members pay a fee to be a part of the group as well. And it's not inexpensive. So if they're not going to be active, you know, they're not going to, you know, renew their membership and continue to invest. Uh, we track their investments every quarter. Uh, we report our data to PitchBook every quarter. So we're we're finding out, you know, people are active or not. And if they're not, then uh, they kind of cycle out. And we're always obviously looking to add new capital. And it's a ton of hard work to add, you know, 60 to 80 new investors a year to uh, complement the folks that become inactive after two to three years for whatever reason. Um, it's a constant need to refresh the capital availability. And it's a ton of work. I mean, we go through 50 potential new members a month, you know, and five end up joining. So it's a, a funnel on the other side when we're talking about marketing and trying to recruit investors to make an allocation to this type of investing. And, you know, most of them have lost money and they're like, well, tell me how I'm not going to lose money. And it's like, well, you know, I can't tell you you're not going to lose money, but I can tell you you're going to have a lot more fun and we're going to do it together. And at least you're, we're all going to lose money together if we do. So, <laughs> you know, you try and um, get through that, but you know, it's tough. A lot of these people get very cynical very quickly because, you know, entrepreneurs say one thing, do another. Yep. And it doesn't take many of those experiences for some to say, look, I got I got better things to do with my time. You know, I don't need to be here, you know, um, getting duped. And so that's why the screening, the due diligence, all those things are so important to make sure the investor experience is high quality so that you keep the people that, in fact, are the serial entrepreneurs, the the the, the true blue folks that are great about helping and supporting the entrepreneurs through the good times, the bad times. And it really is a self-selection process. And once you have the culture of your group uh, established, it kind of has a certain energy to it and it, it repels and it attracts. And uh, that's, what's a lot of fun folks that come right in, just love it. It really resonates. The core values align. Great. Boom. For those that have their own agenda, have their own thing they want to accomplish. They pretty quickly realize that's not going to work here and, and they move on. So do your, um, do your presenters typically fit a profile of somebody that's, that's, is very experienced, have been there, done that, maybe they're on their second or third company, or is it more likely to be somebody that, that is doing their, their first company, or is it, some, is it some mix of the two and you really can't, really can't say? Probably half the folks that participate um, and present are members of the group. 
So by definition, they're, they're angels, they're entrepreneurs, they've built and sold several companies and they're doing their next thing and they're coming through. Um, so that is by and large, the companies ended up making it through the full process are typically ones who've raised capital, who have a track record of success, who understand the fundraising process and, you know, understand the value of what we do. Um, for, you know, earlier stage entrepreneurs in their career, um, it's tough. You know, there's a lot to learn and, uh, you know, it takes just a certain amount of time and uh, mileage to be able to get to the point where you're able to compete with the big boys, you know, um, NFL football, Major League Baseball. You know, there's reasons why those folks can swing and hit a curveball over the fence. You know, it's because they've worked at it a very, very long time. Whereas, you know, if you and I got up there, it's not going to be nearly as pretty. It's the same thing with entrepreneurship when you have a competitive environment you're competing as a first-time entrepreneur against successful entrepreneurs. And that means you got to surround yourself with just a fantastic advisory network, board network, co-founder, team. Um, it's all about team, team, team. So if, in fact, you're someone who's developed something and, and you're in that founder role, you know, we're really going to evaluate the founder factor and whether you've, you know, separated yourself from the business in terms of understanding what you need to be to be successful as a go-to-market company is a lot different than what you need to develop a product and get some initial customers. So, you know, we're certainly uh, very attuned to that. Again, we're always looking for the underdog and uh, for that person who's got the breakthrough idea, we're happy to surround them with love and uh, be able to support their vision. And, you know, over the course of the year, you know, maybe 10 to 20% of the entrepreneurs that go through are more of the earlier first time entrepreneurs, but, you know, 70 to 80% of the entrepreneurs are definitely ones who've, uh, you know, built and sold a few companies along the way, typically. We are speaking with Nathan McDonald, who is CEO of Koretsu Capital, about the decision of whether or not to participate in a, uh, in a, a pay-to-pitch uh, um, opportunity. Um, another, qu- another question I, I have, and I think our listeners will be interested in, is, is how do you handle confidentiality? You know, you're dealing with a lot of intellectual property-heavy uh companies obviously it has to be disposed at some point you're not gonna you're not gonna have a lot of success pitching a black box um but at the same at the same token um you know protecting intellectual property is not easy and it's rarely cheap how do you how do you manage that process in a way that that balances the the need for information of of your investor community with also the need for protection for your participants yeah, for the secret sauce, it's really important that the entrepreneurs have an intellectual property strategy for protecting it, for patenting it, you know, who's advised in that. So we do a lot of due diligence on exactly that, making sure there is a good framework in place for the company to record, document. Uh, that's a, you know, having that sustainable differentiation, having that freedom to operate and the ability to prevent competition from coming right after you. Uh, is very, very important. And our due diligence process uh, accounts for that. We often have IP attorneys that are involved on our due diligence teams doing those reviews. Uh, If necessary, they'll go under NDA for looking at that, you know, if if patents have not yet been filed or there's some underlying secret sauce. um, The specific members of the DD team will, will go under NDA for that, but we don't sign NDAs for the general presentation or the pitching for capital. I mean, it's all about trust. And uh, if you don't trust yourself and your processes and, you know, if you say, Oh, you got to sign an NDA for me to tell you what you're going to do. I mean, obviously that kills trust right out of the gate. So you do need to know who you're talking to. You do need to make sure you have good IP counsel and a good IP strategy, but 
you know, having those things in place generally allows, and it, the question will come up at every single presentation, you know, how are you going to protect what you have and prevent competition and, you know, create a good exit. So it's a very important consideration for, for entrepreneurs to make sure they're, they're set in that area. Um, we are, uh, we're, we're running up against, um, our, our time limit here, unfortunately, but and as, as usual, I didn't get, all, get to all the questions I would like to ask, or I think our listeners would like to, to hear about if, uh, if a listener wants to contact you about more information, maybe about the Koretsu forum itself, or even just, you know, maybe they have an opportunity to do something like this elsewhere. Um, would you be willing to talk to them? And, and if so, how can people contact you? Yeah, we do a number of uh, online events every month uh, as everything's virtualized now. So folks are welcome to attend uh, our presentation training, our due diligence training, our other online informational meetings. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, welcome to come as a guest, get a chance to see what uh, deal flow looks like that we're looking at through the Kretzi Forum group. So they can reach out through kretziforum.com or our website here in the Seattle uh, k4northwest.com and has our event calendar. And uh, my email, Nathan at CoretziForum.com. And also for those interested in learning more about Coretzu Capital, which is our top-off fund, once due diligence is done, the funding round is being completed, we come in and provide top-off funding and syndication. Uh, that information is available at CoretzuCapital.com, uh, along with our portfolio company details and, and things like that. So uh, we're very open. Uh, it's easy to find us on LinkedIn and uh, through our online groups and events and uh, Mike, great to be with you. Great questions. Great discussion. I appreciate your passion for the uh, how these things uh, you know come to be and how we can help entrepreneurs along their journeys. And happy to come back. I'm sure there's a few other topics we could probably dig into as well. Very good. Well, I will take you up on that. Um, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Nathan, Nathan McDonald so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us today. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.